We're so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome back to part two of our Romans chapter one study in which we are going to continue our journey of going through. If you have not listened to that one, um, this, you know, this message will kind of stand on its own, but I encourage you to go back and listen to it. Um, And if you are joining us again on this, welcome back to that as well. So we're going to get right into the second part of Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. And as I talked about in my first podcast over this chapter, um, if you are new to this, just understand I, I talk oftentimes about the things that seemingly not many other people are talking about. Like they're out there. They're just kind of nestled in the weeds, some, if you will. Um, they're not the popular ones. The popular teachers today are the ones who tell people what they want to hear. They fluff you up. They, they only hone in on the love of God. They only hone in, hone in on the forgiveness of God, oftentimes misconstruing what, um, what forgiveness is, what the cross is, all those various elements of the gospel. Um, I talk about and even kind of hone in more so on some of those challenging truths, some of the things that are difficult. And the one we're going to talk about today is one of those difficult truths. I think the, 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 the premise of, well, maybe not even just the premise, the, the, it's very easy for us, um, I'll just put it this way, it's very easy for us to just want to hone in on the love of God. That God's my friend. That God is, you know, uh, a likable figure in heaven, if you will, that um, I can just relate to. And he loves me and he's compassionate and he's merciful. But the reality is, is that he's also vengeful and wrathful. Um, and we're going to talk about that side of God today. And so we're going to look at this and, and just... If you have a hard time accepting what the Word of God says then this will be a very challenging thing for you. Um, But we're going to go through it. He says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So let me back up just briefly to kind of understand this. The very first word is for, which is an indicator term. It links it to a previous thought. So Paul established something just prior to this statement that we need to keep in context to what he's about to state. And one of those things is, is the concept of the gospel. The gospel is God's way of not having to pour out his wrath on mankind. It was something that he sent his only begotten son so that he could provide a way of escape from the coming judgment and the coming wrath. Because I don't believe that he desires anyone to perish. And I'm not just saying that from my own accord. That's because that's what Second Peter chapter 3 says. He doesn't desire anyone to perish, but that all would reach repentance. Now, the direct context of that is for his beloved. However, I believe that God's desire is for all people to be saved, because that's what Paul tells Timothy as well. 
So the gospel is what is established beforehand is something that God has introduced and injected into this world, into mankind, so as to not have to pour out his wrath. However, if people we reject that, if people will not look at that sacrifice that was done, then God says, then I have no other option at the end but to pour out my wrath. So I'm trying to spare you from that. But if you reject me, then I will pour out my wrath. Now, I want you to notice something here because it's a very un-Calvinistic type um, verse that we just read. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Do you notice that it isn't God suppressing the truth in them so that they may not believe and be saved? It was by their own unrighteousness That the truth was being suppressed. And he goes on, he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. God has made it evidenced in all of the creation that is here. He has evidenced who he is and what he is as the creator. But because of their own unrighteousness, they suppress because they don't want to see it. I was recently talking to somebody, and it's been a while since I've studied this, so there might be a few elements that that are incorrect on this. But if I remember correctly, it's a guy named Richard Dawkins, who's a paleo- paleontologist, one of the foremost ones quite a few years ago. And um, he was in an interview, and, and he, somebody was asking him about God. And essentially, this is what he stated. Like, if you take all the, the crustacean levels of the earth, and you realign them after seismic activity has kind of done its number on them. But if you take computer modules, and you realign these things, and again, I'm taking liberties with what I'm stating as his quote here, so it's not direct. You realign them, he says, all the, the fossils that we've uncovered are, are essentially on one crustacean level. And his takeaway from that was, it's as if there was this um, grand architect designer who just placed all the animals here at one time. But he made this statement afterwards. After you know, a discussion, all this, he said, but I still choose to believe there is no such thing as God. Everything that we need to believe in God's existence as the creator is here for us. And yet, people refuse to believe it because they don't want to. And it comes down to the heart and the essence of control. People don't want to relinquish the control unto somebody that they can't see or somebody that will govern them in a way they don't want to be governed. So we suppress the truth. It is not God necessarily who is suppressing the truth in us. God has created a way for all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. But it is our free will in which we choose to reject that, ignore that, even though it's clearly evidenced. We reject that knowing that God exists. That is why his wrath is poured out upon mankind. And that is why he is even just in doing it. Because he has made the way of escape and people refuse to take it. I don't think that anybody would look at a guy out and drowning in the middle of the ocean and a boat comes along and they throw him a life preserver and he's like, no, 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 I don't need that life preserver. I'll be fine on my own. I don't need that. And you throw it out there again and again and again and again. And every time this guy rejects the life preserver that's being thrown out there to him, a way to save his life, he says, no, I'm good. Even getting upset as to why you keep throwing him this. Eventually, the boat leaves and his demise is at hand. 
I don't think anybody would look at that and be like, how unjust for them to have left. And I think it's the same way with God, who time and time again reaches out his hand to an unfaithful, unrighteous, unholy people who reject him and his son over and over and over and over and over for them to stand before him and say, you didn't take my opportunity to be saved. My wrath will come now. He goes on, he says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. This goes into what I'm saying. They are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Uh, I believe that um, the context, the immediate context of what Paul is bringing about here is referencing the unbelieving Jews. I don't believe it's limited only to that because I believe the extent extends to all unbelieving people. Not just Jews, but also to the Greeks or the Gentiles. But I think the immediate context is referencing the, the unbelieving Jews who refuse to believe that Jesus is the Christ. The unbelieving Jews who have exchanged the truth of God in which they once knew and have exchanged it for the things of this world. Now, I believe that's the immediate context, and that's why he says things, for instance, like, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile. They weren't always futile. They became futile in their thinking, and their minds became darkened. And then it says, and they exchanged the truth of God that they knew, and they exchanged it for things of this earth. Now, I believe, again, that the immediate context is the unbelieving Jews, but I believe it's not limited to only the unbelieving Jews. This is something that stretches forth to all of mankind. And Psalms, I believe it's in 19, talks about this same exact concept where it says that um, all of creation declares the glory of God. Like you can't look out at the wind and at the sun and the stars and, and see everything of how it all functions and works together and say, ah, there's not somebody who's controlling all that. That's just two big rocks that collided and then all of a sudden, bing, bang, this, this all came up. Like that's the best we can do to try to come up with the fact that you cannot, recre you cannot create life in and of itself. It's impossible. Mankind has been trying to do it and they can't generate it. They can't do it. They can't just generate life. Even though we've got these tunnels in Germany, I believe is where it's at, where they have these huge things where they try to get these two elements that, that go at these huge speeds and try to collide them. And they're trying to get something to spark and to generate. And as vast as what our technology is today, we can't even do it. And yet we want to reject the fact of everything we see out in creation. We want to reject that there's actually an intelligent designer. 
you know, you could go into, you know, so maybe some of your own reading. You could look at Second uh, Thessalonians chapter one, five through ten. You could go to Ephesians chapter five, six through seven, and a letter that Paul is actually even writing to the church, and he says that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. That means that even as a believer, you could come under the wrath of God. And I know that's not a popular teaching, but that's what the Scripture says. Judgment will begin at the household of God. God will still have a judgment even upon Christians. And again, a lot of people don't like that, but that's exactly what 2 Corinthians 5.10 says and what Romans 14.12 says. That we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, each of us to give an account for what we've done in the body, whether good or evil. And even going back into verse 18 when it says that who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, that even applies to Christians, guys. 2 Corinthians 6.12 says that you're not restricted by, Paul says, you're not restricted by us. You're restricted by your own affections. He's writing to the church. So while this, I, I believe, this passage is referencing the unbelieving Jews who refuse to acknowledge God's gospel that he's given to us through Jesus Christ. I believe it extends to all of humanity, even into the church. Who, through our own affections, these, these earthly, carnal passions, we suppress the truth. It's our own affections that are hindering us from our progression in the faith. And God's wrath will come upon the sons of disobedience, so we must not become yokers unto them. We shouldn't yoke ourselves to them. What fellowship does light have with darkness? What partnership? As he talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 there, right before the verse that I quoted. The concept is, is littered all throughout, and it stretches even into the church, that we must be careful to pursue holiness as He is holy. Or else we also will come upon a judgment. I know we have this whole concept of past, present, future sins that have been forgiven at the cross. But let me just tell you, that is not something that the Word declares. That is the teachings of man that have been passed down. And because we want that to be true, we don't see the truth that it's not. So I, I would ask you... Are you exchanging anything of this earth, even the doctrines of men, for the truth? Are you doing the same thing that he's talking about these people? Are they exchanging the glory of the immortal God and his truth and the gospel message of Jesus Christ and the cross of what he has done on that cross for us? Are you exchanging that for the doctrines of men because it's comfortable, because it's easier? You see, we can be victim to the same thing. Just because we've been saved doesn't mean that we have been given this inability to wander and to fail. The difference between a Christian and a, and a person who's an unbeliever is that we've been given the ability to be victorious through Christ. In fact, as the word puts in Romans, to be more than overcomers through him who loved us and gave himself for us. Jesus has given us the access and the remedy to not fail. But if we choose to not abide in Him, if we choose to not have Him on the throne and yield to His Word and submit to the Spirit's leading, then we too can fail. And we will have a judgment for that. That's why He talks about in James. He says that we will give an account as those who teach the Word. 
That's not a light thing. You go read Luke 12, the one who knew the right thing to do and failed to do it, for him it's a severe beating. But the one who did what deserved the severe beating, but didn't know what he was doing, gets a light beating. There will be a judgment. I can't tell you exactly what that's going to look like, how severe it's going to be. What I do know is that that judgment does not negate our salvation. Our salvation is in Christ and our faith in Christ. That doesn't mean that we won't be held accountable for the things that we do or even don't do. There's a lot to unpack in that, but I don't necessarily have time, and that's going to get us way off of the, the kind of the, the concept that Paul's trying to establish here. So, in going back to this, just understanding that it is our own unrighteousness that suppresses the truth, and as I believe, this is primarily speaking to the unbelieving Jews who refuse to acknowledge the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, as 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 are going to talk about. I believe it extends even further out as I've, as I've diagnosed and talked about. But what they're doing is they're exchanging essentially this. They're exchanging the glory of God for the glory of this world. Now you can go read James 4. And James 4 is a clear message to believers. And he says this, that your passions are at war within you. Your earthly passions, your heavenly passions. And they're at war within you. And he says this, you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your earthly passions. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You know, the only people who can make themselves an enemy of God are Christians. Because prior to being a Christian, you were born as an enemy of God. You are not a friend of God. You are an enemy of God. You are a transgressor and a rebel against the heavenly agenda, as Ephesians 2 talks about. The only person who can make themselves an enemy of God is a person who has become a friend of God and has chosen to then relinquish that and go to be a friend of this world. It also says that he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. James 4 can only be referencing a Christian, a genuine, born-again believer. And so this is a serious topic that we've got, to, we've got to unpack and we've got to take an honest look at. Because here's what God says, or, or through the hand of Paul, here's what it says about this in verse 24, of people who choose to go off and be a friend of this world or to exchange God for this world. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Did you catch what he said? He said, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. He allowed them to go off and do what their heart actually wanted to do. And why did he do that? Is because it was part of his just grand plan to say, no, I created you to go to hell. No. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they chose to serve this world rather than God. Now again, the immediate context, I believe, are the unbelieving Jews who traded what the promises and everything that they had known about God, they traded it and they served the world. But I believe the same thing as 1 Corinthians 10, 1-14 talks on, those same exact examples that happened to them 
were written down for our instruction that we might not desire evil as they did when 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test. Notice what Paul says. He includes himself and he says, we must not put Christ to the test. He's not saying God, he's saying Christ, meaning he's now bringing it into the new covenant and the old was an example for us under the new. But the same consequence could be true even for us. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Now we're about to find out what is dishonorable. And what a passion is that is that is lustful and that is carnal, that is fleshly, and that is a result of us exchanging the truth of God and the word of God for something that simply appeases us in our flesh. But he says it wasn't for God's providence and sovereignty that he created them to go to hell that he gave them up. We're going to get into that in Romans chapter 9 and I would encourage you to pay attention because Romans chapter 9 is not a Calvinistic passage. And if you don't know what I mean by Calvinism, then I would suggest you go research it. But he says, for this reason, because they chose to give up God for the things of this world, God gave them up to their dishonoring passions. Notice the cause and the effect. It's littered through scripture. Return to me and I'll return to you. Draw near to me, draw near to, I'll draw near to you. Seek me with all of your heart and you will find me. You know the cause and effect? That's not Calvinism. Calvinism has nothing to do with cause and effect. Especially if you're a hyper-Calvinist. It's all just about the sovereignty of God. Everything's under the control of God. There is no free will of man. We can't do anything unless God does it for us. That's not what scripture states. It is if you misconstrued it. It is if you misdiagnose it. It is if you strip it of its context. And it is if you don't take it in the context of the fullness of what the text states. But if you analyze all of scripture, Calvinism is not a legitimate um, doctrine. It's a doctrine of man. So he says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Meaning that these women exchanged um, sexual relations with men. As God designed it in the beginning. It's called a dishonoring passion. It is not honoring to God because it's not under his blueprint. He says, and the men likewise gave up natural relations, meaning with women, and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. You see, this wasn't... The homosexuality and lesbianism was not the beginning of the sin. It was a culmination of a sinful heart turning and rebelling against God. And as a result of that progression away from obedience and submission to the word. And they progressed farther and farther and farther from that. Finally it got to a point where God says, look, I'm going to let you go full fledged into these dishonoring passions. Because you have exchanged me and my truth for the things of this world and for your own dishonoring passions. So homosexuality and lesbianism was the end result 
It wasn't something that just started as the slow seed and then things progressed from there. It was actually one of the furthest ends of a heart that has been completely given over to sin. It's kind of like what James 1 talks on 13 through 15 when he says, Each person is tempted, Lord, by their own desire. Desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Now, James 1, 13 through 15 is written to believers. And when you understand thanatos, the word that's used there for death, is not one of the other four words like apothenesco or necros. It is thanatos. It is the one that is the finality of death, both spiritually and physically, in its context. And here he says, men receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, you can make all kinds of cases for what this is talking about. It could simply just be meaning a judgment. It could be a physical judgment like AIDS. I don't know exactly what this might be referencing. What I do know is that there is no way to justify homosexual behavior as a Christian. It is impossible. And yet, somehow, some way, we have churches that are inclusive of homosexuals and say, Hey, you're a child of God. You can freely practice that. It's, it's out there. I don't know if you've had the experience of knowing that it's out there, but it is out there of people who are literally saying, you're you're a homosexual and a Christian, and you can be a practicing homosexual and a Christian. We'll even put you in the pulpit in some denominations. And let me just tell you, it is sin. And it is because men have distorted the truth of the word and exchanged it for things of this world. And there will be wrath. Now let me make this very clear. That wrath is God's wrath to enact, not ours. As Romans 12 talks about in the subtitled passage, The Marks of True Christianity, one of those is, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. He says, it is not up to you. To go out there and execute God's wrath upon mankind. In fact, it's quite the opposite because of the cross that was given to us and the example of that. That does not mean that we don't speak against it, that we don't speak the truth. But it is not our job to enact the wrath of God. We leave it to Him. As First Peter chapter 2 talks about it, Christ, when it says that when he was threatened, he did not threaten to return. When he suffered, he did not um, revile against those who were bringing things against him. But he continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. He knew that it was not his job to bring about the wrath of God. That was God's. Because God sees the bigger picture. We don't. Our job is to stay on the cross and to love in truth. That's our job. So if you are listening to this and you're like, I need to go out there and I need to go purge evil from the church. I need to go purge. And you think that that means to try to retaliate in some way or avenge in some way by taking somebody's life or by doing something. Please do not misunderstand this because that is the farthest thing from the truth. God is the one who will do something about his own wrath of what he wants to do. Much like even in Jude when it talks about Michael didn't even presume, he didn't even do a blasphemous judgment against Satan himself, but he left it to God. He said, the Lord rebuke you. God will take care of you. That's not my job to go out there and do that. So make sure that you have it properly diagnosed as to what it looks like to carry a cross in the reflection of Jesus Christ towards sin. And don't do anything that doesn't reflect 
the character of Christ on that cross. And going on, he says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not to be done. Again, cause and effect. It wasn't God giving them up to do what not to be done, so they did what shouldn't be done. It was because they did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to that debased mind. So again, this is very un-Calvinistic. He goes on, he says, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, listen to this. This is again why I believe the immediate context, though not limited to that, but the immediate context is the unbelieving Jews who had a knowledge of the law. And we're going to get into that in a little bit, of the law of Moses. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Where, where do you think they got that righteous decree? That was under the law of Moses. Purge the evil from among you. A person who's caught in the act of adultery, take them outside the camp and stone them. A disobedient son who refuses to be submissive to his parents and they take him before the elders and he still won't do it. He says you take that son out and you stone him to death. You don't blame me, go look in the law. God took it very seriously. It was a righteous decree under the old covenant, a righteous decree that those who practice these things as a person of Israel deserves to die. It says, though they know this decree, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. I believe the same things even happen in the church today. As we've even talked about previously, that there's people who are out there giving approval to people who walk in homosexuality and still claim the precious name of Jesus Christ. And they say, no harm shall come upon you. I believe it could be even as simple as people who are saying, you will not be judged for your sin because whenever you got saved, all your past, present, future sins were wiped away. And you won't be judged for anything. You won't stand before God for anything. And they might even themselves be doing some of the things that deserve judgment, even under the new covenant. So you could have some of the extremes on both ends, kind of one of those, the, the more subtle extremes and one of the grander extremes. But either way, it's wrong. To not only do them, but then to give approval to those who do them. I could bring up the concept of divorce and remarriage. I could bring up the concept of homosexuality. I could bring up the concept of greed, avarice. People who are going out there and they're working 60, 70, 80 hours a week so they can just provide for themselves a more luxurious life. That's greed. And it's actually one of the things that he says is condemnable. Rather, work for the food that doesn't perish, as he says in John 6, 27. Or in Proverbs, I believe it is 23, 3-5, he says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. The concept of going out there and just expending ourselves for the things of this world so that we might have more self-indulgence and luxury. I'm not talking about in giving it away. I'm talking about in self-indulgence and luxury. That's condemnable as well and there will be an account for that. And yet people are saying, you won't be judged for that. That was forgiven at the cross. It's out there. 
This is why I'm not a big fan of, of Baptist theology because I believe that it's not correct in its fullness. I have, I have people that I listen to that, I, that are Baptist in their doctrine. However, I can respect them. Do you know why? It's because they teach repentance. And they teach the need for holiness. Like Paul Washer. Paul Washer would lean towards Calvinism. He, he would be under the denomination of Baptist. But the guy teaches repentance and holiness. He says, it's not okay for you to be living like this. You need to repent. So I, I can respect that. And I can learn from that. But these teachers, quote unquote, that are teachers, that even as First Timothy chapter 4 verse 1 says, the Spirit expressly says in the latter time some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to the teachings of demons. I believe there are demons all throughout the pulpits of our churches today. And they are teaching things for shameful gain. And they are teaching things that are trying to lead the people astray, giving approval to the things that people do that they know they shouldn't be doing. And so we've got to be mindful of not exchanging the things of this world for a holy God. As he says in Matthew chapter 6, you cannot serve two masters. You will hate the one and love the other. You will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. That word for mammon is essentially avarice. It's essentially a word that means worldliness. You can't do it. You can't serve both. It's one or the other. And God has given us the opportunity to serve Him in truth through the person of Jesus Christ and the grace that He affords to us to do so. May we not be a people. Whether you're an unbeliever right now who has happened to stumble upon this podcast, I want you to know God has given you a way of escape so that you do not have to go through His wrath in that thing called hell on that last day. You have an opportunity to repent and to receive the gospel and come under the lordship of Jesus Christ and find life like you've never experienced it before. And not only the life here on this earth, but eternal life in heaven, as we're going to talk about in chapter 2. But if you're a believer and you're a Christian and you're exchanging the things of this world, I should say, you're exchanging the things of God for the things of this world. And let me just tell you, there will be a judgment. Do not let people deceive you in any way. For because of these things, this, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 5, 6-7. through 7. Do not let anyone deceive you in any way. The wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience through as the church. Therefore, do not become partners with them, lest you take part in her wicked works. As he alludes to in Revelation 18 when he says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And he says, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her wicked works. The judgment upon mankind that's coming. Praise God, our salvation does not hinge upon our good deeds or our evil deeds, but upon the person of Jesus Christ. So if you are in Christ, then your salvation is secured as long as you remain in Him. And this is why it says in Hebrews 10.36, we have need of endurance so that after we have done the will of God, we will receive what is promised. And 1 John 2, I believe it's around 21, 22, somewhere in there, it says, and this is the promise, eternal life. God has said, the one who believes has eternal life. You have that promise. 
But your job is to endure to the end in Christ. And the works that you supplement to that faith in Him will either strengthen your faith and cause it to grow or it will weaken that faith and cause it to die. So may we be a church who strengthens our faith with good works so that we may gain an entrance into the kingdom of heaven as Second Peter chapter 1 teaches that we are guarded by God's divine power through faith for salvation ready to be revealed. So all some of this might be new to you. Some of this might feel uncomfortable to you. Some of this might be completely off base from what you have always thought or known. But I challenge you. I challenge you to get into the word and see if I'm wrong. And take it in, which it's, in what it says, not in what you want it to say or have always been told it says. And take it in the fullness of the text. Not just in the verse. Y'all be blessed.